Hello, and welcome to my new podcast, Champions of Security. I'm your host, Jacob Garrison. On this podcast, I'm going to be bringing in security-minded individuals from different organizations at many different companies. Each person will bring their own insights and experiences to help you become a champion of security. My first guest is Andres Mayhew. Andres brings over 25 years of experience with large-scale internet operations. He's worked in the trenches of Netscape, Napster, VeriSign, Rivian, and nearly a dozen startups. The teams he's led have enabled developers to own their applications end-to-end through the entire software lifecycle, with an underlying mantra that execution is a feature. He's pushed development teams to consider a production-first mentality. This means considering the fault tolerance, scaling, security, and cost requirements on equal terms as features and functionality. His work includes deploying, maintaining, and updating high-traffic web properties while running with five nines of availability. At VeriSign, he was responsible for full-cycle development and implementation for core PKI infrastructure services, which supported billions of daily transactions. Andres, thank you so much for joining today. Really excited to have you here. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the the time and uh, the opportunity. Of course. So uh, just to start off, you told me a story a while back, and it was about, it was about denial of service. Uh, and I think anyone listening will probably find it pretty interesting. Would you mind just sharing that story again real quick? Oh, sure. No worries. Yeah. I, and and just to be clear, it's a self-inflicted denial of service. So it, it makes it even better. So, um, yeah. So this is this was early days, I guess you'd say. Um, early 2000s, I was working at, at VeriSign. And um, for those who don't know, VeriSign at the time had like 80, 85% of all um, SSL certificates. Basically, everyone either registered, you know, got their certificates either through VeriSign or one of their subsidiaries like Thought and things like that. And and the other part of the story that, that's actually relevant is that um, the U.S. military or the U.S. government basically classified cryptography as munitions. So we had certificates for the United States, which had a higher level of encryption, and then there was the rest of the world. Um, and so, yeah, so... Basically, what happened was, despite all the monitoring and alerting and all the other things, um, Verisline let the rest of the world root CA expire. Um, and what that meant was then all of the certificates that they had actually um, issued against that were also expired. Um, and so what happened was is that, you know, basically um, browsers you know, hitting those European rest of the world kind of websites for SSL would hit the site, they would do the SSL check to see if it was a valid certificate and immediately be like, no, it's not valid because the root's not valid, so I'm going to go and hit the CRL file again. And it would just hit it again and again and again and again um, with no back off, with no, n- nothing like that. And so it was, it, <laughs> it took 24 hours at least Maybe it was a little less than 24 hours, somewhere between, you know, but almost a day for basically like everyone's hair to catch on fire and um, for the folks to be able to come in and do the ceremony, which took about, it takes four people at the time, it took four people to do the ceremony to generate a new root CA to certificate and and do all the work. In the meantime, um, the denial of service basically flooded three DS3s. So that was basically the entire bandwidth that the company had. So 45 megabits each. Um, we served out, I think it was four terabytes worth of data of just expired CRL file uh, for the day. 
and we broke network equipment. Um, my servers lasted the entire entire time. It was it was great. It was a basically a, a wonderful opportunity to tell the network team, yeah, I told you there were bugs in the router here, and and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, it was really kind of crazy because, you know, there were all these you know Cassandra-like moments of the technology is telling us, hey, this is going to happen. Um, in terms of, you know, the monitoring was in place to, to start alerting people months in advance. Um, but the people fell off, you know, the, the, who, who should have been responsible just was like, oh no, we'll take care of it later. Or they just ignored it. Cause it was, again, you know, it was just like a Sandra kind of like moment. So, you know, we broke the internet, at least for a good portion of the world, um, for, for a good 24 hours. Um, now I think it'd be much worse these days, uh, because, you know, back then, about the only time you hit SSL was like, oh, your shopping cart or you're, you're buying your airline tickets or some, that sort of thing. Now everybody's, you know, it's, it's, you know, HTTPS all the time, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Your, br- your browser bitches at you if, if, um, if, if you don't have the little lock and things like that. Yeah. Just so. to go onto pretty much any website, if you need that yeah. these days. And, and so, I mean, how many people in the world do you think have, have broken the internet? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm sure there are a few AWS employees out there that have done it a few times. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it was it was entertaining. Uh, it, was, it was nice to see all the graphs that came off of that afterwards and go, yeah, see, I told you it would work. Uh, kind of stuff. And, you know, and so coming out of that, you know, you you mentioned that there were alerts along the way. There were warning signs that that you had instituted that should have told them, hey, this is, this event is bound to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, without throwing anybody under the bus, did they actually go and change anything to stop it from happening again? Like, was that something that, that they went to deal with? Oh, uh, well, eventually, yeah, I think so. I mean, there are a couple of things that 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 really, I think, opened some people's eyes. I mean, one, um, VeriSign at the time had a very much not invented here mentality. So, so in order to even support this traffic, it was like, oh, we built our own you know, data centers, we had all of our own equipment, all this other stuff. It's like, you know, yes, this is pre-cloud, but, you know, Akamai existed. We could have put all this stuff off in the CDN. It would have been able to handle this a whole lot better. So there was there was that piece of, like, the resiliency. Um, in terms of the monitoring, yeah, the monitoring went up to a certain level in terms of alerting, but it clearly didn't go high enough. It didn't escalate, right? We didn't escalate up to like VP level and things like that. So that definitely changed things too, where it's like, okay, um, you know, um, and I think the structure of the company changed as well, because I don't think we even had a CISO at the time. We might have a CTO, certainly, but, you know, there was nobody in charge of uh, and had that ownership of security, which is a little ironic given it was a security company. Um <laughs> But you know that that's that's the way things were, you know, and in, in many respects, that's the way things still are. It's just like, I mean, we 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 definitely have, you know, here's a security team. They tell us what to do, um, but in a lot of places, it's not. I wouldn't think it's really well integrated. So like, security is still kind of an afterthought for for a lot of teams, a lot of folks, um, even within the security industry. Uh, it, it's really kind of. It's like, you know, they're just much more product focused still, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, they go, we're, we're building a security product. We're going to go out and, and we're going to, and it's a checkbox for some folks, you know, it's, it's a lot of shelfware out there. There's a lot of like, oh yeah, if we get these alerts telling us about, we have these vulnerabilities, but nobody ever looks at it, um, kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, the technology is not going to save you. <laughs> it's really what it boils down to. 
if, yeah. if you don't if you don't take it seriously because the humans are gonna are, are the ones ultimately responsible to to take care of it right yeah yeah that makes sense and that's part of why you need to be able to really explain why certain things matter right like you need to be able to say this this needs to be dealt with today um like in the in the uh story you you explained and you know one interesting thing you just brought up was like security being an afterthought uh and, and even at security companies and so i'm I just, I'm curious to get your view on it um, and to help kind of our, our audience understand where you're coming from. Would you mind explaining kind of like where you feel like you've sat in organizations over the years? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, my career arc has mostly been in, well, I call myself a system administrator, but you know, we, we, you know, the, the operations, the, the web operations, cloud operations, that that side of the of the fence where it's like we're the ones responsible for the twenty four seven uptime, the not you know when people say five nines, it's 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 me who's getting woken up in the in the middle of the night. Sorry um, about that. Yeah, no worries. Uh, <laughs> it, it it's a thing. Um, you know, we, we, there's a certain level of crazy to to deal with that. Um, but uh, yeah, so so from my perspective, um, you know, certainly before we had terms like SRE and DevOps, that system administration sort of mentality was it's the end of the life cycle of, of development. And it's thought about like, oh, we're ready to go to production because we're feature complete. And so now we're thinking about, oh, well, what does it mean to, to be production ready? What does it mean to be secure? What does it mean? And that is the wrong end of, of the cycle to think about um, because you, you're already, you know, from a developer perspective, code complete, you're done, your feature um, on all the other stuff. Um, now, you know, thankfully, well, when, when people use DevOps as an actual SDLC, as opposed to, you know, our philosophy for development, rather than just a term of like a department, um, yeah. you, can, you can turn those things around, right? <laughs> um, or we can start adding terms into there like DevSecOps or, De or FinOps or whatever, you know, th those, those are all philosophies and on how you develop to to turn around where and when you start thinking about things um right um you know in the traditional like pre-agile days of waterfalls like oh well you know we just go through this set of steps and it's you know non-parallelized it's just here's a sequence of how we do development and at the end we do this stuff yeah. um and it you know it's easy to fall back into that because having to think about the features you want to develop and scalability and fault tolerance and security, you know, it's not, I mean, to be fair, I come from, you know, I have a CS degree. I come from a development background. It's, it's not what we're taught to think about, you know, that, that operation, that production first mentality is not what you are taught in university or a hack reactor or whatever, um, kind of scenario, you're taught how to program. Um, and it takes a different mindset to understand a lot, the difference between developing a feature and developing a feature that's actually going to scale and be robust. Right. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. Um, I mean, because yeah, just, I mean, just like you, um, I have a CS degree and I worked in aviation and in aviation, you know, it's like it, you're sort of forced into a waterfall style. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the development work is done in an agile, an agile manner where you have sprints and it's broken up and you have like, it's done in that way. But, but to your point, it's like you, everything 
has to like fit into this product that has to be feature complete. Um, and a lot of those issues that you run into with, with, uh, like reliability of systems or security of systems, you don't really know until you're feature complete. And that's, that is like a, it's a problem in development. I would say in general is that people, like you said, they're, they're taught to, to program a feature, solve a problem, you know, do something, um, and not look at the system as a whole. So I'm curious about your perspective on, you know, how, how do you think we could change that? Like, how could we get developers to actually think about systems rather than think about individual features? Yeah, I, that's a great question because, you know, it's, it's one of those things in the organizations I worked at that, you know, there's, there's always a struggle with. Um, and part of that is, is kind of the historic wall that's between like operations and, and development. And, and in some places, literally like a totally different building, but we never saw each other um, kind of thing. Uh, but to, to, I mean, first and foremost, it, you know, it, well, at least from, from where I sit as a, as a, you know, operations type person, it's just admin is instead of thinking of my job as running, um, running the code, running the production environment, I actually think of my job as enabling the developers to own their applications end to end. Um, and in the true DevOps sense. So like, you know, it's not just, Hey, we got to stage, let's hand it off to the SREs or the DevOps team or whatever to run it. It's how can I make the tools so that the developers don't have to think about, um, how they deploy. How do they um, set up their infrastructure? How do they get the resources they need to run their applications and make sure that that's the same process and and tooling from development, QA stage, production, you know, um, and and so it's it's really about developer enablement at that point. And when you can get inside your head, developer enablement's really your job. Then you can start preaching that to the development teams, like, look. We're, we want to come in here early. We want to be here as a partner at the beginning of the development cycle to go, okay, we want to help you understand how the system works in reality beyond the feature. Um, because again, it's, it's a, it's not something you're going to get trained on in, in a traditional, you know, school type environment. It's also not something you're going to get really, unless you actually get that page at three o'clock in the morning that tells you, oh, this is on fire. How do you figure out that it's, it's working and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, so it, it's one of those, you know, on the job kind of skills, right? Um, and it's definitely a learned skill. It's definitely something you can pick up, but it, there's, it, it's almost, at least at this point, you know, there, there's no, that's what we're looking for. It's more like an apprenticeship. You know, someone wants to become a, a DevOps engineer, SRE or whatever. It's like, okay, there's a certain amount of, yeah, I know Unix internals or, or whatever, networking and stuff like that. But until it's like, oh, something caught on fire in the system. How do I debug it? How do I figure out what's the actual root cause? How do I then mitigate the issue? And you do that a few times and you start understanding, oh, here are the, here are the single points of failure in the system. Here are the, here are the things that are going to be the bottlenecks and that sort of stuff. Um, and then being able to present that to the development teams, to the project managers and the program managers and go, look, I understand we want to do this feature that's externally facing to the customer and they're going to go, oh, that's pretty. But 
execution and being able to be stable and reliable is also a feature. And so you just kind of have to advocate and go back and forth. Yeah, that that, that absolutely makes sense. And one term you threw out earlier, uh, you, you had brought up DevSecOps, right? That idea that people are, are discussing. And so okay. I'm curious, you know, obviously we talked a lot about reliability, but in terms of in terms of security, like do you think that security should be the same thing as DevOps? Like should that all be one department? Or do you think it, it makes sense to have them as two separate departments or ideologies? Um, that's a good question. I, I, it's a, it's a matter of the skill and the size of the organization, right? I mean, it, it doesn't make sense to have a security team of one when you've got five engineers and, and, and maybe one, one, you know, DevOps person or whatnot. Yeah. Um, because you know, what having a separate team is about is providing one that that expertise and specialization um, to help guide the folks who don't have that focus. Um, and, and there is a level of responsibility there as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's like you don't go to the veterinarian because you broke your arm, right? Yeah. They're both medicine, but they're specializations. And, 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 and so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay. I can talk to my data science team, but you don't want me building models because, well, it would, it would take forever. Um, but I can tell, I can tell my data science team, Hey, we need to do X, Y, and Z in order to make sure that, um, you know, Cassandra clusters are, are going to, you know, survive this, you know, th this, uh, this build and this run of the model. And, and my security team can tell you, Hey, we better make sure that these things are locked down so that we're not leaking, you know, um, you know, patient health information or PII or, or that kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and yeah. So the answer is it depends. <laughs> it depends on your size and depends on your need. But, you know, even if you have a separate team that's, you know, around security, it's everybody's responsibility to make sure you're secure, right? It's, it's you know, it shouldn't be security team's job to go, hey, you know, all of our APIs need to be authenticated and have authorization. That, that that should just be like, here's a checkbox. We've had the standard. This is how we're going to do this kind of thing. It shouldn't be security's job to go, hey, are we are we making sure, you know, all of our sensitive data is encrypted at rest and in transit? That, that's, you know, these should just be natural things that happen as part of the design and, and development process. We're going to do these things because these are the right things to do. And when best practices do change, it's that that's when security is going to come in and go, yeah. Oh, by the way, you know, we used to rotate passwords every 90 days, but you know, that's really a horrible idea because humans are terrible and, <laughs> and they'll make their passwords, you know, the same thing with an extra exclamation point at the end, rather than making a real strong password that you can keep forever. Um, so let's go change best practice. Let's, let's evolve as best practices change. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. Like, you you have these things that are so fundamental to the design like api authentication and authorization right and it's something that that really the development team should be intimately familiar with anyone that's building an api should be familiar with that topic uh, but but for some reason you know it's not taught in school at least in my experience um you know it's it's not something that's really emphasized and you have to learn it in the field and practice and and then there's things like rotating passwords, which, which yeah, I think only the security team actually cares about. 
that sort of thing, right? So there's things that are very domain specific um, in terms of what the best practice is. And then there's things that like really should be should be broad knowledge. Um, you know, they, I, I absolutely agree with you there. Um, and, you know, I guess, do you, have, do you have any last thoughts on this? There's something else I want to ask you, but I don't want to change the subject unless... If you... you know, I mean, I mean, I think I think the big thing that, about having those specialized teams, whether it's it's a, a sec- security team or an operations team or, you know, an ML, is, is that they spend time with the other teams that they interact with, training them, by teaching them, like, what, what do we do? What, what is, what is, you know, what is the value add, so to speak, that we're giving to the rest of the company and to you by, by, you know, inserting ourselves into your process, so to speak. Um, because by, by calling you on the day at three in the morning saying yeah, it's on fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what does that mean? You know? I mean, because when things are running and quiet, most people think I'm just playing video games all day, um, rather than ha- you know the care and feeding of of these of these monstrous systems. Um, so yeah, I I think the last point is really just you know those specializations is is to bring in the knowledge of more than just the baseline understanding, but you know to raise the bar in terms of how you build things and, and and how you secure things and how you make things full tolerant and scalable and re- reliable and that sort of thing. So that in the end, I mean, especially if you're customer, I mean, we're all customer facing, but in the end, you know, we're giving a good customer experience, not just by the features, but, you know, by being available and trustworthy and all this other stuff, because security boils down to just trust, right? I mean, the reason why VeriSign does not issue certificates anymore is because they lost trust with, with the industry because they had internal bad actors who started creating SSL certificates against, um, you know, well-known large companies. So there, there, there were individuals who made something.google.com certificates for themselves. Like, okay, that's kind of the end of your company right there because you've broken trust. You know, it happened with, it happened with RSA, whereas like their, their root, their root certificates got compromised and it's like, boom, they're gone. Um, so that is a tenuous place you're in with security that it makes security folks sound paranoid, but it, 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 it happens. So you get, you get, you know, you get in big trouble and with like, you know, com, um, compliance regimes like GDPR or CCPA, um, or high trust with, with HIPAA or FedRAMP, you know, the minute you have a breach, you know, it's there is a major business consequence that that comes up i mean we're finally seeing it in the last couple of years with gdpr is like major fines against like um british airways and other companies for spilling pii it's like okay well you know it's it's not just a good thing <laughs> it's gonna keep you it's it's gonna Im- impact the bottom line and, and and things like that so you keep having to you know increase your picture uh, an understanding of, of the company and the world that you're, you're living in, uh, yeah. in order to be a good developer, in order to be a good ops person, in order to be a good security person. Yeah. I mean, you brought up so many good points and it, I don't think I can even dive into all of them, but like, <laughs> insider risk is something people have to think about. And, <laughs> and one, one really interesting point was the idea of, of security events being really consequential to the business. And I think it's, it is curious how some businesses it has a huge impact. So you take, you know, like VeriSign that you brought up, um, or or you take uh, like LastPass has been in the news a lot because of because of their issues, right? And yeah. and it's it's has a fundamental uh, effect on the public perception of those organizations. Mm-hmm. But then you take other 
other breaches, which are maybe less consequential, um, things like, you know, when, when Facebook or WhatsApp or Twitter or any social media gets breached and the breach is basically just scraping more or less publicly available information. And, and like, it is still a big deal, but for the actual consumers of those particular organizations, maybe it's not such a big deal. It's like they, they assume everyone already has that data anyways. And so that's where, to your point, something like a GDPR or a fine or, an, or a governing body sort of has to come in and affect the bottom line for the organization to really institute or for them to be motivated to institute that change anyways. Yeah. Like obviously they can institute a change on their own. Um, but let's face it, I mean, all of that effort to institute the security and to change the mentality within the company, it takes time, which is money. I mean, you know, in, in any place. So, you know, that, that's time and money that normally you're thinking about, oh, what are the cool new features that I can create so that I can send more ads to you and, and, and generate more revenue and, yeah. and, you know, adding security features, adding things to make the site more reliable or whatnot are typically looked at as, as cost centers rather than, than revenue generators. So that, that's a totally different topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like how do you convince the executive staff? No, we're not a cost center. We're actually keeping you like in a job. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's hard to prove it until you have an event showing like, hey, look at how much money you just lit on fire because you didn't <laughs> let us do our job. Yeah, exactly. And that actually, it's a really good segue into costs, which is something that I would love to pick your brain about. Hmm. Um, and, and so when you think about like equipment cost or cloud cost or security cost, right? Like that's that's something, would you say that's pretty in your wheelhouse in terms of what you have to manage? Oh yeah, especially, I mean, you know, whether it's in my career, it started off with traditional data centers and it's like, okay, how do you manage the contracts and things like that? And that, but you know, now almost everyone, or, you know, it's certainly the, the barrier to entry to start something with the cloud is, is so much lower that, yeah, you're, you're, that's most people's first choice when they want to start something. So yeah, cloud costs and managing that are, are massive components of my job. It's end of, it's end of the month and end of the quarter. So you're 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 talking to a guy who's like gonna be you know after this like digging into the AWS costs to break down like okay which which parts of the organization cost how much and what and and things like that for finance so they can do their books. So yeah, well, thank thank goodness we're catching you before you have to deal with that. <laughs> I have a few days into April because yeah it it takes a little it takes a little time for all the stuff to settle, but yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, obviously we're trying to focus on security in this podcast. And so when you think about the ways that security impact the costs that you manage, um, you know, what, what do you think are, are the areas where like a lot of organizations maybe are spending and have room to spend less, whether or not they're ever going to, you know, is there anywhere where you feel like there's a, there's an opportunity to reduce cost in a security viewpoint? Yeah, because I think the, it's, I mean... So in a lot of places I've been, there's, there's, there's a compliance regime we have to stick with. So currently my employer is Pixio and we're healthcare. So there's high trust, which relates to HIPAA. Um, and we also do a, a, a SOC too. And a lot of those compliance regimes, they, they like, you know, we, you need to have an AV solution and, and endpoint security and all these other things, which are checkboxes for a lot of folks. And what you end up having is, is shelfware. Um, where, yeah, I've got my checkbox, it does its thing and it's burning money because nobody looks at it. No one, no one 
no one, it, it, maybe it's alerting into the void or maybe it's alerting to somebody and they just put it off into a folder and they never do anything. Um, and, and so, you know, there's that where it's like, yeah, we picked this tool just because it was, you know, it checked a box and it got us through it, but it's not actually, um, improving our security posture. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there to one, like look at what you're using for quote unquote security and go, are we really using this? Is it actually improving our security or is it just something we're using to check a box and to reevaluate and go, well, what can we use and what can we find that's not just going to be a checkbox, but that's actually going to help us protect our customers and, and, and our environment and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, the, the, the thing about tooling is you need to always be reevaluating it on a regular basis because again, like I said, like we talked about earlier, the, the, the state of best practices evolves over time. Um, because your threat actors evolve over time because it's like, oh, well, you know, we went from simple, you know, ACLs on, on, on routers to block certain points to having firewalls to having deep packet inspection to, you know, unwrapping TLS and, and inspecting like what's the actual, you know, web traffic kind of stuff. And that's, that's an evolution of, of, you know, the state of security and trying to defend and mitigate against these threat actors. Um, and in terms of cost, what I'm seeing is, you know, how do we consolidate our vendors? Um, because if, you know, from the finance perspective, if, if we can get one vendor that can cover a bunch of these check boxes, then hopefully we can get a bigger discount and, and, and do this other stuff. So, um, that's a lot of what I'm seeing, you know, from a, from an industry perspective is this consolidation or this desire to consolidate vendors so that there's fewer contracts to negotiate to, to hopefully get better, better, um, discounts and things like that. Um, I look at it personally as an opportunity to actually have security tools that do what I need them to do and are actually useful and not giving me false alarms and, and, and alert fatigue. Um, but it, it does, it does concern me in another respect in that it's like, you know, you, you've got certain companies that have a very niche product and it's probably best in class, but because of that financial pressure to find a vendor that covers a bunch of different checkboxes, you might not be able to use that. Um, and that, that's a struggle you have to, to work with in terms of like, well, how do I justify this particular niche vendor who does this one thing really, really, really well, um, when you know, from an existing vendor or from a larger, like a CrowdStrike, who's like, oh, they've got all these sub products that I can have and it'll do this thing too. But you know, yeah, it, it, it's good enough. Or, you know, we, we, my current employer, we're all, all in an AWS. So it's like, oh, well, what are the security tools in AWS? Right. Yeah. And, and with any of the cloud providers, but I, I, I've said this about AWS for, for a very long time. It's like almost every AWS solution is an 80% solution in that it'll cover you for 80% of all of your needs. And then if you get to a certain scale or a certain sort of edge case, it, it's like, oh, now I got to reevaluate. Am I really using the managed service or do I have to build it myself or find another vendor kind of stuff? And that's, you know, it works for Amazon because again, covering 80% is, is great. That other 20% is really hard to do. Yeah. That's, it's an interesting point about, about, you know, vendor consolidation and, now companies would rather 
have you know one point of contact or fewer points of contact, fewer negotiations, bigger discounts. Um, so if you're thinking about like, let's say you found a niche sol solution that you love mm -hmm. and you want to bring it in, but to your point, it's a company that just does one thing, you know, like is it, is it difficult to sell that internally? You know, like, does that get struck down right out of the gate or like, what is, what does that process typically look like? It depends on the economy. And I think a lot of this desire for consolidation is the state of the economy right now, which is uncertainty, right? There's a whole lot of people screaming from the rooftops that the sky is falling and we're hitting this recession and you've got, you know, the Googles, Facebooks, and, and Amazons laying off swaths of folks. Um, but when you actually look at the, the state of, you know, the economy and the tech sector in particular, it's the mid-sized to startups that have money they are building things they they are hiring like crazy the reason why those big companies are doing those layoffs is because in the middle of the pandemic they just hired everybody who walked through the door because they could um and now they're like whoa why do we have all these people what are we doing and so they're they're you know they're they're beholden to the stockholders and this has caused you know this panic mentality uh, well, we gotta we gotta tighten our belts. Um, we've got to look at every place that we can to to save um, money and 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 costs and 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 you know for a lot of folks who are not technically savvy who are coming from a finance perspective that that vendor consolidation is 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 a really easy way of of you know tightening the belt, so to speak. So when it comes to you know finding that niche player that that's going to do that that other 20 percent that you know your regular vendor doesn't do um you know it, i think it depends on the organization like i i'm in predominantly tech organizations that are tech focused they're not i mean and so i can make that technical argument i can go look this is this is where it's going to save us in terms of manpower and effort in terms of improving our security posture, but like, you know, we, we go through audits every year. So, okay. One of the, one of the things that we're looking at is a tool that'll, that'll make that audit process just take that much less time. And if I can, I can one show that, yes, this is an expenditure from a, from a CapEx perspective, but the OpEx comes down because we are now able to focus on actually building the business rather than spending time, um, you know, Oh, look it, it, took our like audit process from six weeks to you know four weeks that that's a that's a big win um and and so it's it's taking the technical side of going and understanding oh this project is going to do this but then also understanding from the business perspective how are they looking at it because they don't they don't have the knowledge to understand the security benefit necessarily and and they're coming from that financial perspective first so you've got to talk to them at that at, in in their language yeah. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And it's one of those interesting things, especially when employees are salaried, where where they'll be like, yeah, it might save us two weeks, but salaries are a fixed cost. So we already have to pay that no matter what. And and so getting them to, to look at how much are you able to accelerate the timelines for other projects that are revenue generating, because like audits, they're not revenue generating processes, right? Like they're, no. they're once again, something you have to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the other thing is like, look, we'll be able to, and I don't know any organization that that's doesn't have technical debt. And, you know, it's like, look at all the technical debt we can wipe off, you know, um, or these are the features that we've had to pause because, 
um, you know, we, we had to pause to do these audits. And so that really helps, you know, you just need to be able to speak to the, where are we going to be able to do things that do generate revenue because we've purchased this product to really be able to push that through. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. And we're starting to run low on time here. So one thing I want to ask you about before we, before we run out is how do you feel about disaster recovery? <laughs> we talked about this earlier. Yeah. I, man. Yeah. That, that's, that's there. You know, we, we talked about check boxes earlier and, you know, SOC to ISO 27,000, blah, 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 you know, all the way back to SAS 70, which probably nobody on here is going to, going to remember. They all had, you know, this disaster recovery plan. You need to have disaster recovery. And, and, and the, and the phrase today is, you know, you need a business continuity plan and all these other things. You know, my 25 years of, of building data centers and dealing with telco and, and web services from Netscape and, and, and Yahoo and Riverside and, and things like that. I have never had to fail over to a DR site. Just, it's just never happened. Um, I think, you know, maybe folks, I, I can, I can, I can think of one occasion where somebody probably failed over to a DR and that's if they had data centers in downtown Manhattan in September of 2001. Um, but by and large, even with fiber cuts and power losses and things like that, the amount of time for recovery on those things has been short enough, even if we're talking six, eight, 10 hours, that the effort to fail over to DR was just not, it, it didn't, it didn't either come in contractually or was just looked at from a, the, the effort to do it's just too high. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and today, especially with cloud, it's like, well, do I really need DR? Can I actually think of my design and do multi-region active-active, right? Because, I mean, we've seen it with AWS and a number of times where a particular region, US East 1, has fallen completely over. It did it a couple, I did it two years ago uh, about, you know, when they had a DNS outage or a DNS problem and it knocked down the entire, um, entire region. It was like, well, you know, at the time I was at Rivian and it's like, it didn't impact us directly because we were running in two different regions already. We just shunted traffic away from the region that was impacted and we kept on going. So for me, like DR is a complete waste of money. Checkbox is like, can we just design so that we're multi-region, um, active, active from, from the get-go. And then, you know, then it's, we're improving performance for the customer and, and we're, um, <laughs> we're not just having idle instances sitting around doing nothing. Yeah. Um, you get those latency benefits and mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so I guess one other thing that popped into my head was you had mentioned security best practices changing over time. Um, and, and one area I'm curious about is in terms of deployment best practices, you know, you, you deal with things like, like Kubernetes or everyone's trying to go serverless or whatever it is. Yeah. Do you, do you have an idea of what the next step will be for either, you know, a deployment perspective or a security perspective? Like if you had to guess, you know, what do you, where do you think the world's going to head? Oh, so, you know, the thing is, and that, that's a, that's a really tough question. I, I'm not one to prognosticate too often. Um, I, I think the whole microservices serverless architecture thing 
is still maturing. Um, there are a lot of things in there that are really, really good. It makes, it does make the deployment process possibly a lot faster, a lot, lot, lot quicker iteration, but there are still design concepts in there that aren't universally accepted. Um, but I think we will get to a point where people are like, yeah, we kind of made too many microservices. Let's, let's, let's shrink that down. <laughs> um, I'm not saying we'll go all the way back down to, you know, these mono, mono repos and, and, and monolithic, um, you know, legacies, like, you know, three tier architecture type things. But, um, there is a point where it's like, okay, we are now getting so much latency just between all the different API calls that we could have kept all of business logic in one or two microservices instead. Um, and, and, you know, the other aspect of that, where I talk, where, where I think about the maturity is, is, um, from an operations perspective, it, it's, it's shifted what the operations team has to worry about and the tooling around that is still not mature. Um, you know, to, to kind of go back to cost, it's like, okay, I go look at my AWS bill and I can tell you all the EC2 instances and how much they cost. But if someone's going to ask me in a Kubernetes cluster, well, how much did this particular microservice or a set of applications cost? I'm not going to be able to pull that out of AWS. That's a, that's a combination of, of pulling stuff out of metrics to see, okay, how many pods were in, in the cluster for a particular namespace over time with the billing. And that is, that is a non-trivial problem that I see multiple companies hitting and, and it's, it's going to frustrate the finance team for a, for a good long time. I mean, every place I've been, it's like, well, how much does a customer actually cost us? And while microservices makes it all really easy for the developers to build lots of, lots of features, lots of, of bits and pieces, and it makes it really easy to increase the velocity in terms of, of how you deploy and, and things like that, it makes it really hard to then make attribution in terms of what costs what and scaling and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's a problem that security teams have to manage too now, right, is that they need to be aware of all of the different things in their environment they have to deal with, Yeah, right? You, you have to have eyes on all of all of those things. And so from, yeah, billing and from securing and from everything, it's like there's just so much such a widespread of intellectual property that you have to be able to take care of. I mean, and it's great in that, you know, everything is now being built with this fault tolerant, like it's going to get destroyed mentality, right? That That's fabulous from an operations perspective because that just helps with the idea of fault tolerance and scalability. But on the other hand, it's like I'm negotiating contracts from, from various vendors and like, well, okay, how do you deal with the fact that we have a lot of transient um, systems, you know, are you really going to charge me per instance per month or is it instance hour or, you know, and, and they're still trying to figure that out. So, I mean, we're still definitely maturing in terms of, of the whole microservices serverless framework. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be a while, I think, but wow. before, before the next new thing comes down the road, I mean, a lot of people talk about edge computing, but um, I, the the use cases for that at this point are not that most most companies most you know applications don't need it. Um, you hear talk about Web three, and I'm just like, yeah, that that's a bunch of dude bros who are just crypto guys who just you know want to try to find a a problem that solves 
that crypto solves. Um, so, I mean, there, there are a bunch of, you know, things out there that, that people are calling the next thing. And there are, most of them are just solutions looking for a problem to solve still at this point. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's something you always got to be, be thinking about. Um, and it's something that's hard to do, right? Like if you, you look back at like the iPhone, for example, and, and they built a solution in terms of a problem people didn't know they had, and it caught on and became massive. But, but you know, in, in most cases, when you're, you build a solution in search of a problem, like a lot of times the market never catches up, right? Right. And so, so understanding you know, where to go next is always challenging. Yep. I've, I've had a few startups like that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, um, Andres, thank you so much for joining. Before we go, uh, I want to give you the opportunity to make a call to action. Is there anything that you want to promote uh, before we, you know, go our separate ways? Oh, you know, I think I think the only thing, you know, I will, uh, one of one of the things that's top of mind for me is 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 around, um, you know, a free and open internet. So, like, I'm a big supporter of EFF, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And just, you know, they're, they're consumer advocates, the privacy advocates. And I think, you know, that's, that's the biggest threat to, to us right now in terms of, you know, how do we keep the internet from being just a cesspool, um, is, is being in control of our digital lives and our, and our, you know, our data, you know, so yeah, that, that's probably about it. Perfect. All right. Well, well, to everybody listening, make sure you uh, keep an eye out for free and open internet. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Andres, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate the time today. All right. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Champions of Security. Be sure to come back next week. We're going to have another exciting guest on this very streaming platform. See you there.